This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. With nearly 35,000 accredited therapists, BetterHelp is the largest online therapy service in the world. To sign up with a 10% discount on your first month, go to betterhelp.com forward slash the AFG pod. Answer a few questions and BetterHelp will match you with a therapist. It's all online and you can get the help you need, as we all do from time to time, from the comfort of your own home, as I have. Welcome to Afghanistan with Ruh Yakubi, a podcast all about Afghanistan and the stories of its people. This show wouldn't be possible without the support of Jordan Fleming, who's been an incredibly generous friend to me and Afghanistan. We've really had a great response to the Seymour Summer episode. And if you haven't listened to it yet, please do. Now, you can also watch the show and the Seymour Summer episode and others on YouTube. So just search Afghanistan with Royakubi and it'll be there. Please subscribe, share, and all that is really important because this podcast is dependent on your support and can only continue with your support. So anything you can do to help, please do. And wherever you're listening from, on whatever platform, please leave a review, stars, and all that because because doing so will enable us or help us to reach to more people and it will show up um, on, on other people's feed. So any support that you can give, please do. Now, our guest in this episode is Zahra Nadir. She's an award-winning journalist and the editor-in-chief of Zan Times, which is um, a media outlet focused on women. Uh, she has an incredible story. Uh, born in Bamiyan, became a child refugee at the time of the first takeover of the province, first deadly takeover of the province by by the group. And she spent much of her childhood in Iran, struggling to get a place um, to go to school. You will really, really like this episode because her story is, in many ways, the story of many people who dreamed about building an Afghanistan that was progressive, that was inclusive, that was moving forward. But she's not really, she's not given up and she's doing an incredible amount of good work um, to continue what she'd left in Afghanistan. So I really enjoyed talking to her and listening to her and I'm sure you will do as well. Zahra Nadir, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really grateful that you've made time available. What you do and the work that you do is really important uh, at Zan Time, which is a brilliant, very substantial outlet trying to continue to keep the focus on the issues related to women in Afghanistan. Uh, but before we delve into Zan Time and its history and its work, let's get a bit of Zahra Nadir. Tell us a bit, tell us who Zahra Nadir is and what made her to become what she is now. Thank you, um, thank you, Ro, for this uh, opportunity. It's, uh, it's difficult to talk about myself because um, I have a mom. My mom always says that, uh, so there's a saying in Farsi, says, mm. So I have learned to never sort of like not so much talk about myself. Um, but let me tell you about the experience that I really feel that shaped me, uh, you know, the, the, the woman I am today. And that starts with uh, uh, my family going to Iran when the Taliban first took over Afghanistan. And then I was a young child. Uh, mm-hmm. We were living in Bamiyan. So I have memories of living in Bamiyan and we have a huge potato field. Um, we, so we are producing our own food uh, in Bamiyan. So very, you know, childhood memories. There wasn't a lot of uh, innovative technology. We didn't have electricity, no running water. Mm. Uh, I remember women were doing most of the work uh, in the village. They were the, the one that who would wake up five in the morning, 
baking the bread and going and taking, you know, like bringing water and doing all the work. And then they would mm. pick up the men to eat breakfast and go and work on the field. And at the night, of course, the women were also the ones that were sleeping late. Um, so I, I, growing up, I, I see that. Uh, and also I see how bread becomes thirst when the Taliban take over and we're hearing about the Taliban and I didn't know who they are. Mm. So basically at that point, there was a discussion of like, we have to leave and there's no safe here and there's no food, basically. So, so how, how old were you at that time food. when the Taliban arrived? I was arrived, around I think. six. So I the Taliban arrived six. in 1998? 1996. So 96, they took over, but I think they have a siege over Bamiyan. Yeah. And that siege really much affected the food that mm. people didn't have access to food. So yeah, that I big Hazarajat-wide blockade yes, that they'd yes. imposed. Yeah. So for yeah. Br briefly, they took over Bamiyan in 1996, right? They didn't. I don't remember they, in a way that took over, but like the, the memories that I have is that there was no food. And I remember oh, okay. that people were talking of resistance, but the reason was the scarcity of food, that the, the food was not coming here. Mm. So we were vividly seeing our neighbors were going hungry. And I remember my mom was giving a bowl of wheat uh, to them, a bowl of flour to cook for their children um, every night. So I was seeing that. I, I knew that they didn't have any food to eat. But the, to grasp it of what happened, um, of course, I was a child. I didn't know how all this happened. Yeah, I just want and to correct they, myself. I just want to correct myself. I don't think if the Taliban managed to take over Bamiyan, if somebody, I don't know how that came into my mind, so I'm wrong on that. I think I'm wrong on that. Now, which part of Bamiyan did you did you do you come from? I mean, where were you born? How far were you from the center? Okay, so you're not oh, far. in the center of Bamiyan. No, 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 not not in the center. So we were far from the center uh, in Baras district. Uh, so. So I remember uh, moving, going to Iran. Uh, we traveled a long way on foot. Mm. I remember one of my uncle holding me on his back uh, because I was very young. I couldn't walk long distances. And then we got a lorry, a huge lorry, mm. uh, at some point in the way, and we crossed into Pakistan and then from Pakistan to Iran. And really, the experience I really feel that shaped me was the experience of growing up in Iran as a mm. young refugee. And it was then that I find out that there is some problem with the country that I'm coming from. Mm. Because when I was going on the streets, people would look at me and they would say, Afghani Kasafat. Yeah, dirty Afghan. Mm. Yeah, nasty Afghan. So... That would really, really hurt me, you know, like I was just a child. I didn't know who I am, you know. At, yeah. And it was that point that I understood who I am from how other people treated me. No, I, I, I mean, I, I spent time in Iran as well. And I remember in 2000, I mean, I was in Iran, if you're, especially if you're a Hazara refugee, because you're so easily recognizable, an Afghani is usually synonymous with, with the Hazaras because... You know, luckily for other people from Afghanistan, they're not easily distinguishable unless they speak and things like that. But for the Hazaras, you're just there. Your features are your the embodiment of who you are and easily recognizable. And I remember when in the there were many episodes where we were abused, beaten up. We're recording it, uh, I think, a, a, a week or so after Iran lost to uh, Iran won against Japan in the Asian Cup, football Asian Cup. And there were a lot of talks about, you know, I, I was looking at social media, there was a lot of, you know, racist slurs against the, the Japanese, et cetera, et cetera. The reason I'm, I'm telling this story is because I, I remember in the city of Qom, one of the things I used to do is I used to buy, use some of my wages that I earned buying newspapers, you know, the kiosks that you go and pick newspapers. And I, I happened to walk past one and there was this well-known sports newspaper and on the front page it said there was a, a iran had played against south korea and uh, and, and they'd lost uh, in uh, they lost in penalties and there was some there was a, the headline was something in persian i don't know how to translate this in 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 english but the persian one was penalty nashiona hadibachashm badami ha so as oh, wow. you know, a, a kind of a racist slurs against South Koreans to say we gifted a penalty to the Almanide South Koreans. And I just picked up that newspaper 
and paid for it and walked away. Just a few meters away, there are a couple of, I think three or four young men who saw me, this child from Afghanistan holding a newspaper, South Korea has beaten Iran, and they just grabbed the newspaper and stopped beating me up. So when you talk about abuse in Iran, I, I feel it. But I suppose it would have been much more difficult for for girls and for women. So yeah, talk about that. Yeah, so you know what, what I'm saying, you know? And it's very different because when I talk to people who were refugee at that time in Pakistan, for example, there were hardship. Hmm. But I feel they didn't really experience the sense of humiliation that most of us growing up in Iran as Afghan refugees, and especially, as you said, you know, Hazara people who are very much detectable, you know, like you look at their face and you're like, OK, they are not from here, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, that really, you know, like has been experience of almost everyone that I spoke to who, who had spent time in Iran. They had this experience, but like that's not a similar experience with the people who, who were in Pakistan, for example. Um, so what was very hard for me was that, okay, first we entered the country, um, there was, we had some sort of paper, it was called green papers, hmm. uh, some sort of refugee status. It was not that we went into the country and yeah. live in hiding. No, we had some sort of papers. Uh, but I remember my mom was taking me to the school. So the first time I heard of school and yeah. going to study was in Iran, of course. And uh, my mom was taking me to school and she was saying like, okay, I'm going to go register you in a school. And I remember she was taking me from school to school, from to school, and everybody did not allow me literally to, to sit in a class. My mom told them clearly that, look, we know we are refugees, so we, you might not be able to legally register my daughter in your classroom, but please understand our situation and only allow her to sit in your classroom for the sake of learning how to read and write. Mm. And that was, and that right was denied to me. Um, and I remember right, the memories that I have was that my mom was crying after, you know, every rejection. And then she was taking me to another school and then she was taking me to another school. <sighs> Not being so where, where school, I didn't really this? know. This was in Abbasabad. Uh, first, like we arrived in Karaj. So basically, it was like okay. a very remote. So it was Tehran province. Okay. Yeah. I have been Karaj was I, part of Tehran. Yes. I, I worked in, uh, yeah, I worked at a construction site in uh, in Fardis, Fardis, Karaj. Oh, yeah. I've traveled yeah. there. We and in Gowardasht. Yeah, I remember those days. Yeah. So basically, there was no opportunity for me to go to school. And uh, I, was, I wasn't in school, so I didn't know what it is that my mom is trying to get me in. Mm. But the passion that my mom had, the, the cries that she was crying and she was in pain for me not being able to go to school, really determined me that whatever it is, I have to get this, you know, because mm. this is important for my mom. Um, and eventually my mom was able to get me into uh, adult school, where, you know, young, uh, like mm -hmm. old Iranian mm -hmm. women usually. They secondary school, I suppose. Uh, not secondary school, but it's a literally, lit literally classes. Okay, okay. Basically, the Iranian women were going and learning how to read and write. So okay. I was able to join that class. I even remember the name of the teacher was Freshadapu. She was like, you know, the first Iranian teacher that welcomed me in her class and felt, you know, like I really felt in her class that she respected me and didn't look down on me because of the country that I was coming from. Mm. And maybe it was in that classroom for the first time that I wrote a piece about my country. Mm. I remember when I read this, this piece for the class, uh, everybody cried. Mm. And everybody acknowledged my work and said, like, oh, my God, like, she has written very well. And my teacher, she encouraged me. And then at that point, I really felt that maybe I have to become somebody. Mm. So that one day I can look back mm. and say, it started with one teacher mm -hmm. who respected me, who see me for who I was and didn't curse me and didn't, did not discriminate against me. And that really ignited the power in me that oh, maybe maybe I should become somebody. So for this teacher, when I come back and say, mm. hey, you know, the trust you put on me, I did not betray that trust. So I become somebody. So your, um, your work wouldn't be really going best. 
Uh, so that's you know that's the time that I learned how to read and write, but it was not mm-hmm. an official school that uh, I would be able to mingle among my you know the children in my age. So it was it remained my biggest dream in Iran to go to a mm-hmm. school uh, like girls my age and wear the uniform that girls were wearing for the pistachio color then. So I love to wear that color. It was like my dream, but mm-hmm. that never come true in Iran. Then we moved to Afghanistan, and that was the happiest day of my life in Iran, the day we went back home in Afghanistan. It was a Monday. I remember that day, and I remember crossing into Afghanistan. It was like true. We came to Farat. It was like a dusty road. It was like, yeah. you know, like I never what seen year, that kind of... What year are we talking about? Um, I am... My memory of the year is could be not accurately correct, but it's either late 2003 or early oh, okay so yeah the taliban had gone long time ago so yeah, yeah. so yeah, you yeah. returned yeah, yeah but the, the, you know on your teacher because that story is such a such a powerful one you know i can see what it means to you um that teacher you mentioned Firishta means angel in in english have you been able to track her down and i'm sure she'd be incredibly proud of that little girl from Afghanistan she let her, she let in her class what she's become what an inspiring woman she's become and if I was you I'd, I'd try to you know to try to reach out and say look I have tried I have tried to find her in social media but unfortunately I don't think so she might be in social media or if she is she's not under her real name so I was not able to track her down but I really hope to be able to one day and um, hopefully when the situation is better in Iran I can return to those days and I can mm. go and visit the teacher uh, who, you know, who helped me to yeah. just see that I'm worthy of respect, that I'm also human. Um, and yeah, and I really hope to, to be able to do that. And I remember one teacher we had in grade six when I returned to Afghanistan, my first time going to school. Mm. Um, this teacher, uh, he was teaching us Dari, and then he told us that, you know, I am, have been a teacher for a long time, maybe 20 years or more. I am going to be a teacher mm. going forward, but I hope to be able to, in this classroom, be my students who will go someday, become somebody, and and I would look back and I would just say, I'm proud of what I, che- what I teach. I'm proud of the students mm. that, you know, like um, learn in my classroom and now become somebody. Those kind of, you know, those messages connecting all this together and just thinking, you know, like, there is a chance for me to do something different, you know, mm-hmm. than what I see women doing in my community, for example, or to see. And also, it's it's also mostly shaped by the lack of opportunities. I don't want to say that it's that not that the women in my community didn't want to become somebody, but they didn't have the opportunities. Mm. Um, for example, so, I so you you went back. Did you go straight back to to Bamiyan or no? We remain in Kabul. We remain in Kabul. So we went to West Kabul, uh, Dashtabarchi. Mm-hmm. So it mm-hmm. was like an area called Regression, which is like a very remote part of Dashtabarchi. It's like almost the end of the world. <laughs> in a way. <laughs> and then, yeah. So you can see that uh, when we moved there, like there was not a lot of houses. Maybe you could see one, two, three, mm-hmm. but like it looked like a desert. There was no house, no building. Sometimes I wish then I had a camera or, a, you know, mm. something that I could capture that when we come, how those neighborhoods look like. And then when we left, how the community was built up there and everything was there. So it was like a community shaped there and built there. But what I want to tell you about those days is that mm-hmm. when we come to the neighborhood, that mm-hmm. neighborhood didn't have running water. That neighborhood, again, didn't have uh, electricity. And most of the things that I used to have when I was a young girl in Iran. So that was sort of taken for granted for me, those rights. But when coming to Afghanistan, not having those rights was in a way a struggle for me, but it didn't bother me because I felt that, okay, it's like I can get education here. And also, this is the place that I will be treated equally. I remember there was a one-way walk to our school from the mm. place that I live, you know, the, the place that we were living. And it was like a bumpy road, a dusty road. And uh, I used to walk every day with my sister. And I would always take my head up. And as if, you know, like I have a claim to this country, 
mm. to the soil that I'm walking on, and uh, like everybody else, you I didn't own the have place. that sense. Yeah, I didn't have that sense when I was. So in you were, if, if somebody trying to hide myself. Yeah, if somebody visited Kabul in those days, you'd see, you know, line after line of young girls in different color uniforms walking, walking to school. So you were one of those girls, yeah. head held high, um, walking to school. Um, yeah, that's that's quite that's quite something. Yeah, yeah, it was power. It was power. You know, like the sense that you feel that yes, here. Nobody can deny me what mm. is mine, you know? But even if they do so, I was the one who was fighting back. Mm. School, to home, to workplace. I was fighting back wherever I felt that my right is not respected. Uh, so I was, in a way, felt that I find my worth in Afghanistan. Mm. And that I am this country, this soil, and everything it has as much it belongs to me as to everybody else. So there is nobody here who can tell me they, that they can treat me differently uh, because of who I am or whatever, you know? So mm. I, have, I have fought for my rights. And so you, what year did you graduate from high school and then went to university? I think I graduated from 2010 from mm-hmm. school. And I graduated in 2016 uh, from. So, what did you what did you study at Kabul? It was a Kabul university, did you? No, no, it was a private university, uh, Gawarshat University. So, the Gawarshat was founded by Dr. Seema Summer. So, she was one of the founders of the. Actually, one of my friends uh, taught there, Dr. Ilham Garji. No, yeah, I know him. Yeah, so I was a student then. Talk to me about Kabul of your university days. Um, now, the reason I'm asking this, because I I went to Afghanistan first time after 18 years in 2018. And now Kabul was the capital of Afghanistan. But then you had Pulisur, which was the capital of the capital for a lot of people. Now, let's talk about that area, the, the cafes, the, the bookshops, which I really found fascinating. Um, and and the people with so much hope and idealism all congregated in that place, uh, a place of I don't know how to how to put it. And and the reason I'm struggling to to put it into words is because I couldn't imagine that one day that place you know loses what it really stood for. It was the beating heart of Kabul for many people, for intellectuals, for poets, for. I don't know, shopkeepers for businesses, for cafes. That was a place where people really dreamed about going to going to university abroad, finding new books to read, new ideas. So tell me about those days. So the university was very close to Polisor. So I remember most of the times that we just go to Polisor and then we would walk to the university. It was like 20 minutes walk maybe. And yeah, I have lots of uh, memories from those restaurants, those bookstores, those places that you mentioned. And of course, it was a place of gathering that friends would gather and then we would just talk. And also as a journalist, um, I would sit meeting with people in sometimes in the restaurant and I would go and interview them. And also for some stories, I would just sit and think of like what people are doing and uh, what they're talking about. It's all interesting for me. And also to just see that how um, this young generation are defining their own choices, they're making choices, regardless of what the people think. That mm-hmm. was really powerful, you know, to just see, regardless of how you're going to judge me, I'm going to live my life the way I want to. I feel that was a sense, a very powerful sense that you could see, you know, in Polisor, mm-hmm. where it was, it's illustration. Um, of young people and of course you know like uh, my house was a little bit far from Polisor mm, but our place of gathering and okay like where should we go for fun we would go to Polisor and yeah mm. uh, I remember those days it was just and how did your career in journalism began so it's, it's a very interesting story because I never made a conscious choice that yes I want to become a journalist and do you know the work that I do right now um, I loved writing. I loved reading. But as a child who was growing up in a family that my parents were all illiterate, 
my most of my siblings didn't have any chance to go to school uh, my older sibling uh so i didn't grow up in a house that did, did have a lots of books the only mm-hmm. book we have was a copy of quran you know and uh, one or two religious textbook um so there was a lack of book in our house and then what we would do when we were going to school and there was a bookstore and uh, not very far from our school it was like ekra bookstore and uh, the bookstore knew us so the, and then we would rent the book yeah to read we were paying two afghani per night okay. to to read the to... books so it was to make the cost less we had to read very read fast, overnight you know, yeah. like yes read overnight so there were times that we were trying to cut our cost and read a lot um mm. so I, i had that that was such before. a great incentive it was it was and then at that time there was a lots of book competitions that you would get a book and you would read and then you would enter into a competition you would you know there was a question about the book and your response and then there was there was a chance that you would get a prize so basically i was trying to enter one of this book contest and the address to get the book was in uh, in a um foundation or an organization that were distributing books i didn't know about the organization before so i only go there to pick up this book for the competition and then i'm overhearing here in the same room i'm taking a book from here but there's a corner of the room there is two people talking about publishing something so the moment i'm hearing that they're talking about publication or something it just clicked in my mind that's like okay at that point i was in a way i was trying to write poems Mm. and i was very much passionate and reading poems so i stood there in line and then that person went and i asked them like i heard that you're publishing something here what what is it that like i have some poem would you be interested to publish my poems and then they said like yes and uh, then it was like chromat weekly it's okay. not publishing any longer yeah it was chromat weekly and then they said yes bring your poems so i mm, took my poems to to the publication and they next week they published one of my poems about mother and the moment i see my name on the paper i was just so oh, wow. felt so empowering so good to just see your name wow my name is on the paper <laughs> can you feel that so it was like so empowering oh, wow. and i and then they invited me and they said like oh if you're interested to write for us we can write you know like anything else so I did a few book reviews I the book that I read and I tried to capture and summarize them and write for the paper and then um they invited me to write about social issues then I started writing about what I was seeing the challenges the lack of water the electricity yeah. the city buses whatever I was seeing So you, know? you you'd become um, a you know you'd become a journalist before you knew it uh, Yeah in a way yes like you know the idea was in me and then uh after that um so I was not very in a in a, a journalist that I would appear in in the media or be going to the press conference I was just writing about the social issues that I was seeing in my community and slowly um I think this uh, media closed and I moved to another newspaper and then another one and through this I started learning but to tell you a little bit of details about one of my first press conferences that I went to um so it was a press conference organized by uh, mahakat okay. yeah uh, and then what was about was about qamus uh, uh, ethnography aqwam ghair pashto i don't know how they translate that uh, but it was about so there was an ethnic study of yes afghanistan yes, group uh, which was yeah that was you know i i, I think let's not degrade academy by you know using that <laughs> academy but no, 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 they, they the, used, the name was. yes so that's what that institution you know they produced a pamphlet or a book or uh, uh, an encyclopedia about ethnic ethnic groups yes. in afghanistan and the focus on the hazaras were racist uh, incredibly crass and yeah just horrible so it was so the background to that is because that created such an an uproar within the hazara community you know politicians like mahati had to act and you went to that press conference yeah so i went there and i'm just sitting there i'm taking notes and i have my recording it was very late evening uh, so after that i had to go home 
And I was, uh, I did write the story from home and then I emailed it to my boss. Like it's a long story of like, I don't know, over a thousand words. And then a million half hour later, he's calling me back and saying like, are you sure that whatever you are quoting, Muhaqqaq is saying, he said, I said, yeah, of course, I have the voice here in the voice recorder. If you want yeah, me, I can yeah, send yeah, it yeah, to yeah. you. You know, and said like, because I'm looking all the media and none of them is talking about the issues or the quotes yeah. that you brought here. Mm. It's very different. And like, so I'm very worried that you might publish something that's not true. And I tell yeah. them, okay, go ahead. It's all on me, you know, like, because I have yeah. the voice, I give you 100% assurance that I did not misquote him. So eventually the story was uh, published and it got, I think it was most read for a long time. It was Jumhur News mm. and uh, it got over a thousand comments. And then I didn't know the significance of the story of like, but it, what it taught me about that experience was that most of the time we as a journalist, we look at the issue and we only look at the big picture of, okay, so what's it talking? What's, you know, we don't look into the details. But sometimes the story is not in the, you know, the general oh, it's just the small details uh, issue of stories. what's important, but it's in the, eat, the details. And what made that story, I think, uh, most read and also very much people engaged with this, was it because I brought those details of, for example, I'm happy quoting how the book is talking about Hazara women and like mm. specifically, you know, naming their bodies and things like that. So I think that made a difference because uh, most media felt that if they put this in, it might not be appropriate or something else. Mm. But me as being a young journalist and feeling that I have all, you know, responsibility to honestly quote what the person is saying, I put all the details there. And yeah, so those were, that was one of my first experience of going out to the press conferences. And uh, so at what point... You know, you you work for different media organizations in Afghanistan. So when did you leave the country? So I left the country in 2017. Mm -hmm. But before that, I worked with the New York Times as well in Kabul. Uh, and then my bureau chief was Rob Nordland. Um, I think he, he gave me an opportunity to, to show that I can do journalism. As mm. good as a journalist, you know, because I feel up to that point there was a mistrust, or should I say mistrust or no? But like it was this assumption about us as mm. women that okay, because they are women, they are incapable of doing certain works, and that mm. sometimes includes working for international media. Um, but uh, I hoped. And the women journalists that who are working right now in Afghanistan, uh, and also especially the women who are working for international media, they're just showing that we are as much capable uh, as any journalist, uh, if only we are given the chance and opportunities uh, to do this work. And you went to America? I, I have been to America for short trips, but... So no, uh, when you left Afghanistan, been... where did you go? Oh, I, I came to Canada. Mm. So you went to Canada. Yeah. Now, for for the the girl from Bamyan who grew up on on potato farms fled with the family to Iran struggled to find a school place in Iran then left for Afghanistan became a journalist read so many books um how did you find landing in Canada for the first time It's a difficult question because when you live your life in Afghanistan, you have an imagination of that. Here, the world looks differently. The sun mm. would shine differently. So I came out and understood that it's not so much different in that sense, but it's different in, in other you know, ways. And one of the first things that stood up to me was the sense that I can walk on the street uh, without any headscarf and however I want to dress and there is no one looking at me and making me feel uncomfortable that whether you know the dress I am wearing is something wrong with it or walking on the streets in a crowd and not being touched you know and uh, just you know that's that's the safety 
on in public that I have never experienced in Afghanistan. Um, because there, first anxiety was, okay, how to dress yourself, how to cover yourself so nobody talk to you, you know, nobody pick up on you, nobody harass you, because the assumption is that in Afghanistan, uh, as you can see with the Taliban right now, right? Mm-hmm. It's the problem with the woman. So the woman should be removed from society in order for men to not, not fall and uh, in, in, in sin, you know, committing sin. And so the woman should be removed. That's also the understanding a little bit different, of course, that there um, we were being harassed. And mm. it was understood that this is okay. You know, like this is part of the society. The woman should not be out. So those who are out, they should be harassed. They should be punished uh, for, uh, you know, um, walking out of their lane. You know, it's like working outside is not literally mm. your job. And to add to that is one point that we had, there was a uh, journalist group suggested that women journalists who are facing harassment, they should put a um, ring, you know, and symbolic yeah. ring yeah, here just to, to, to show, to show that they're married engaged. Or married. Yeah, yeah. and it was yeah, like yeah, yeah. so ridiculous for me to see this is how you combat harassment against women to making them wear a, you know, like engagement ring or wear their cover or now remove them from society. So that is the treatment that women unfortunately experience in Afghanistan. And growing up, that was also part of my story and what I experienced. And how are those days of Afghanistan crumbling back into the hands of the Taliban like for you, watching from afar in Canada? Uh, the sense that things were going back, I was feeling in May, and I even tweeted about that. Um, that they have to be stand fit because things are because the Taliban are not defining again, you know, the, mm. the according to Islamic law, because we know what the, what happened before. So we have to be very really cautious and ask the Taliban to really, literally define what it means. Yeah, that their Islam is a very dangerous thing. Exactly. So when all this happened, uh, in a way, I had a feeling that this might happen, but not in a real sense that oh my god, this ha- had happened. And of course. I was a total mess. My family, my friends, everyone I knew was in Afghanistan, but as well as my plan for the future. I was a PhD student at York University studying women and gender studies. And I was imagining myself that down the road, two, three years, I will be moving to Afghanistan. I'm going to do my research there. I'm going to teach at Kabul University's women and gender studies. And you know, all that plan of how I will be writing women's political history and, you know, like a very different path I imagined for myself. But when the Taliban took over, all that was gone. It was not that my family, my friends and everybody I knew was in risk, but as well as my hope and my aspiration for the future and and what I wanted to do with my life. So it was like very, very traumatizing to say. But I think what really helped me to go through those days was that I said what I can do as a journalist. Mm. I'm going to do that. And at the end of the day, even if what I do is very small, very insignificant, I can sleep with myself knowing that I did my best. Mm. That was my responsibility. At the circumstances I was, with the resources I had, I mm. did my best. And now, that really helped me to, to you know, pass through those difficult days. Given given your background, given your work, given your your story, and given how the whole thing fell apart, one of the things that we often get overlooked, and I, of course, consciously talk about in this podcast is mental health. And anyone who is impacted by the things we've been discussing in terms of mental health and emotional health, please do seek help where possible or talk to friends. Now, how did you cope with the emotional impact of being a child in Iran, going to Afghanistan and growing up there with all the... There are a lot of dreams being made in Kabul, but Kabul was by no means a safe place, especially if you're a Hazara, you're in constant under constant threat and targets and many, many attacks kill so many people. And of course, your experience in Canada, what has been the emotional impact of your experiences? And have you thought about that? Of course, uh, lately and recently, I think a lot about the trauma and the, its mental you know, mental impact it has on me and also the way it shaped and changed my behavior. 
And I didn't know a lot about trauma until I came to Canada. Uh, when I started my master's degree, uh, I started reading and delving into this academic work and started reading experiences and writings of Black feminists talking about their experience of discrimination, their experience of racism. It really resonated with me. Um, and what happened is that I find myself most of the time just reading textbooks for a course, and I'm just sitting here and crying my eyes out. And I'm just questioning myself, what is wrong with me? Why I am doing this, you know? Mm. Um, so it uh, it becomes so, you know, regular occurrence for me that I decided to visit um, a therapist at the campus. So I visited the therapist and I'm telling her my story. And then she told me, you know, you have been in a survival mood for a long time. Mm. Now that you are in a safe place, that emotional baggage, that trauma that you have carried, and up to this point, you didn't have any opportunity, any chances to be able to reflect mm. because you were always worried and trying to survive. You didn't have the chance to reflect back and process those emotions and those traumas. And now those are coming back to you because this is the time that you have that space and time for them to come back to you. So it was difficult, but again, you know, coming from that mindset of Afghanistan, that okay, it's, it's okay, you know, like as long as I can walk and talk, <laughs> there is no issue and no problem. Yeah, I'm fine. So I didn't really seek uh, professional help um, a lot. And then I was in a workshop, uh, I caught in the workshop for uh iwmf uh, women's international media foundation for afghan women journalists in exile so there we had a session about mental health mm. and do you don't know how much eye-opening that was for me into understanding my own experience of trauma and how it has shaped me and how it has changed my life um, and i learned there that you know like trauma affect you at least in three you know aspect of your life. One is your bio, which is your body, and also your psychology and emotion and distress, and also the social relations that you build with the people. And how I experienced that for myself was the body side was that for most of, for a long time, maybe, uh, I was waking up with nausea after hours. Mm -hmm. I was in a very, very bad mental health uh, crisis. And to the point that my stomach was like, you know, nausea and very mm -hmm. sick, bodily sick. Mm -hmm. And um, when I went to the doctor, the doctor said, like, everything is good with your, you know, like, bodily. But take paracetamol. Take pa that's the thing. That, that's the default. Yeah. Thing. <laughs> so, I, um, so I struggled of understanding what was happening. And then having this uh, conversation, and then later on, I went to DART Center and become awkward fellow at Dart Center in uh, Columbia School of Journalism, there I learn even more about this and how particularly trauma affects us, not, not only as human beings, you know, that encounter mm -hmm. trauma in their lives, but as particularly as a journalist who tell the story of war and the story yeah. of discrimination and injustice and cruelty. So it's really is something that affects us. Um, and for example, most of the time, how that affect me is that I feel myself, I find myself isolated. I feel myself socially, you know, unable to Distant. reach out to other people. I feel distance, yes, in social, it affects me, right? And the feeling of distress, it's like very common. Sometimes I really felt that why do we, the people of Afghanistan, do not trust each other, you know, like we rather trust other people than our own selves, you know, like there is mm -hmm. no trust between. And then I feel that one of the aspects and one of the reasons for that is that we experience, I feel all, all the people who are living in Afghanistan um, have experienced some sort of trauma in their, in their lives. So how that affects them is, of course, you become distressed with the people around you. Your worldview changes, you know, the way that you look at the world. For example, if you were hopeful, you know, like uh, for the girls in Afghanistan, if they were hopeful, even with the lack of, you know, resources, lack of electricity, running water, going to school, they were hopeful that they will be changing their own lives, that they will be changing their society. But what happened now, how do the worldview of those women who are living in Afghanistan changes that they now doesn't have any hope, doesn't have any belief in the future. 
and their whatever they see is just you know this negative sense that you know whatever coming is all getting worse by every day and there is no news no, nothing is coming that's going to be good and i feel that in a way very much also affect me and my colleagues at times because we tell the story of women another story of uh, lgbtq mm. community who are also the most marginalized in afghanistan and uh, of course and we had the privilege of having dot center uh, giving us workshop on uh, trauma informed journalism and how we understand our own trauma and mm. be a better journalist and more ethical when we are interviewing people who have been traumatized yeah um now let's talk about zantai give us the the background to zantai and why why zantai so zantai from the name you can see that zan means woman and yeah. zantai is basically our way of saying that at the time that the taliban are trying to silence us are trying to remove us from society we resist there and we speak our truth to power and that's what we are trying to do um, at zantai um so the idea of how zantai started and um, i told you about that feeling that i mm. it's the feeling of uncomfort after august you know that that i yeah, am yeah. responsible that i have to be doing something if i don't do that that's like i cannot live my life so that responsibility take me thinking about like how we really can change the situation how we can be do this work better um and as i said i had the experience that the experience of discrimination in afghan newsrooms as well as the understanding mm-hmm. that international media feel that afghan women is not very much capable of producing good quality journalism i wanted to disrupt that notion mm-hmm. that because of our gender because of our sex we are incapable of doing any work so it was an idea of a disruptive work is needed and it's needed for us to be able to uh, keep um you know most in english audience as well uh, yeah, inform yeah. about what's happening in afghanistan because as you know most of the decisions about afghanistan is make internationally outside the country mm-hmm. not by the people so it's very important for us to be able to bring the voices of the women in afghanistan of the lgbtq community and also you know like uh, covering human rights violations and bringing it to um, international audience and especially you know the policy makers the people who are working in Afghanistan and making decisions and letting them know of what women are thinking in Afghanistan how they are living their lives inside their house when for example the Taliban are being invited uh, you know to different international conferences yeah, and yeah. here and there so we feel that's important and our way was to start this work mm. i was a journalist in Afghanistan and i didn't have any experience of fundraising experience of uh, managing a team but i was committed to this cause that we, i need to be there and most importantly for the idea that if i was a journalist in afghanistan a woman journalist i needed somebody to support me to stand by me and help me continue my work um and i felt if i was there that was my need i mm-hmm. wanted that to, to be happening so i thought I need to be there for the women journalists who are in Afghanistan and might need a help if I was there I needed so I want to be there um and uh, be the support that I didn't have so for me it was the idea of us working together supporting so we are our team is a very small team we are working with a small group of uh, now women journalists in Afghanistan but also um a mixed group uh, outside the country in, in different uh, places uh, and of course uh, what i want to try to say was that initially they started this idea there was no funding we didn't have any seed funding mm. we didn't do any crowd raise fundraising for seed funding of zan times uh, i told to the friends and colleagues who gathered and we started zan times that uh, let's start this work and if this is something needed is important i'm sure that there're going to be people who will support us to continue this work if it's not and we did not succeed at least we say we tried and that's important for us to know that we did our best even if if we didn't go far um so i put i had a little student saving that i wanted to go and build my house in kabul i used that to build zan times and uh, yeah as you can see we survived almost now it's like a few months that we become sometimes become 2 years 
Uh, yeah, no, it's such such an admirable work that you're doing, and it's it's an incredibly powerful resource in English and in Farsi, which is really important. Before the Taliban's return of the twenty year period, one of the, the the achievements of the key achievements of the two decades was Afghanistan had a relatively free media, although you know many many journalists died. The, the media was quite vibrant. And majority of them are now out of Afghanistan. So what do you see the challenges of what you do? So what are the key challenges for you to to cover Afghanistan? So as you know, like the field of journalism has changed a lot in Afghanistan. You cannot compare it to what we used to do before the Taliban and how the, how the media used to function then. Um, what we are talking about now is that we have this Taliban in power who's utmost task is to um, make sure that the media is saying what they want them to say, you know, to propagate their own propaganda. Um, but what I'm not trying to say is that all the media in Afghanistan, especially those are working in Afghanistan, are the Taliban propagandists. But the Taliban are trying to make them their own propagandists. Uh, it's, and uh, what we are seeing from the initial that the Taliban, when they took over, their, their most or first target was women, and then after that, I feel it was the media. And it put women journalists at a very difficult situation because they're at the intersection of two operations at the same time. First, because of the, because who they are, they are women. So they are subject to the Taliban's policies on women. For example, if they're going outside, they should be accompanied by a male chaperone. Mm-hmm. Um, they should be covering head meal head to toe and things like that. So if they do, don't adhere to that, uh, they are at risk and they cannot continue their work. And you think of this, that most of the women journalists who used to work, most of them were independent and were not married or were divorced. Or if, if they were married, they had their own income and a sense of independence that they were living with. And then suddenly that all is taken away from them because there happened to be born women in Afghanistan. And uh, to add to that is that it's not the Taliban have uh, have not officially banned women from working in media, but they have put pressures mm-hmm. on the media and especially scrutinizing the media that have women journalists in their staff. And that's very difficult, especially for the provinces. We might have still women journalists working in some cities, but in some provinces, even the airing women's voices on the radio is banned. So you can imagine how uh, how close the society is. And for us to be able to report this is the challenges that you face. So I give you a background of that. That's what's happening with women journalists. But to give you um, what the challenges we face is that first, we have to the trust. It's a big question. Mm-hmm. Um, first, we are journalists and we want to be ethical journalists. So we are we don't go to the people and then write it. We have to tell them that we are gender, that the, the story, but whatever they tell us, it's going to be published. Um, and then when we do that, of course, most of the people um, who suffered injustices, um, discrimination and violation of their rights, they feel threatened because most of them, they say like, the Taliban have already killed like one or mm, two of my mm, family mm. members. And you're asking me to come and share my story with you? That will put more risk on my family and I might lose, you know, um, another member of my family. Am I willing to do that? And of course, no. most of them, they're not willing to do that. And I give them all the right to do not because it's it's their lives and it's at risk. Uh, so it's, for us, it's very difficult to be able to get the people talking. Mm-hmm. But we have used some ways, for example, we do not use their names and we try to hide any information that particularly might identify them for most of the stories, you know. Um, and also uh, our journalists are working on the pen names and uh, trying to use different channels mm-hmm. to be able to uh, divert the Taliban attention from what they do. Um, so we use also relation, you know, like long term, long term relationship building with our sources. For example, we contact them, we talk to them, we tell them who we are, and then we go back to them a few weeks or months later. And then we talk to them and we ask them about the question. Basically, we are trying to establish a relationship with these sources. For some of them, we already had connections because they mm-hmm. knew us that we yeah, are journalists yeah, before yeah. the Taliban. But for some, 
it takes a lot of time to build the relationship and also make them see that you are doing real journalism because as we can see, there's a lots of misinformation, disinformation. Um, and that's in a very discredited journalism. You know, there are media who are not doing journalism, unfortunately, and that hurt the credibility of all the media, especially now that we have the Taliban in power. So fact-checking is also very difficult, but we have taken that into, into consideration and are trying to look different ways of how we can verify this information uh, to make sure that we publish fact-check information, that it doesn't come back and say, oh, it was not true, right? Because we see that that regularly happens now uh, for, unfortunately, for the media in Afghanistan. And these are some of the challenges that we face, especially with the protection of our colleagues. So one of my biggest challenges how to keep my journalists safe in Afghanistan because their safety is my priority no matter what I do what I say here I know like there's not literally the Taliban gone on my head but that is not true for my colleagues so I have whatever I do I have to be cautious mm -hmm. that I'm able to protect our team and because those people want to do this work uh, but of course not at the cost of their own lives right um, and it's very difficult. So sometimes we do not publish some good stories that we have, but we fear that if we publish these stories, it would either put the, you know, the subject or the person that we interviewed at risk or our colleague at risk. So we have to make decisions so that we cannot do this work. And this is unfortunately a daily kind of decisions because the situation is not in a way that you create a procedure and say, okay, this is the plan. We're moving forward. We're going to do ABC. The situation is shifting every day on the ground and it's shifting, it's different from province to province. Mm -hmm. So we have to take our measure in terms of what province this person is, how is the Taliban controlling information there? Um, you know, like based on that, then we make decisions of whether we can publish a story or we cannot publish it now, or maybe we keep it for a later time. So this person get out or, you know, things like that. So it is very difficult. And to add, a third difficulty or th third challenge have been fundraising for mm. a nonprofit organization. Uh, as I said, I started this with my own funding and yeah. my own student saving, but it has been a challenge for me to raise funding for Zantimes to continue its work because uh, the, one of the challenges was that I was not very much connected with any source of funding. So people didn't know me. And when mm. people don't know you at the, this environment, it's difficult that they trust you and give you money to do the work. But fortunately for us, for the past one and a half years, we have been able to establish our work and to really show that what we are capable of producing and how we can do. And this has been done under a very minimum resources mm. um, that here and there now, we got a grant what, what yeah, are, to be able to do this work. So what are your, your hopes for Zantai? And of course, what are your hopes and dreams? What are your hopes and dreams for Sahra Nadir? Thank you. My hope for Zantimes is that I really hope to be alive to see the day where Zantimes have a newsroom in every province of Afghanistan. That is my hope for Zantimes. And I want each of Zantimes newsroom to be led by a woman journalist. And that way, I think we have, we can change the society. We can change this culture. You see what it means to you. Your work means so much to you. I, I really admire you immensely. I admire you now more than I did before because I didn't know you and we've not spoken before. So this is the first time we're speaking. Uh, but yeah, you've you've got so much of admiration. You're incredible and you're really, really inspiring. And, Thank um, you so much. I appreciate it. And my dream for Zahra Nader, I my dream for Zahra Nader is to have an opportunity to pursue writing. I don't talk about it a lot, but my passion is like writing. I really, really love to have the opportunity sometime in my life mm. to be able to write. One of the projects that I love to work on is writing Afghan women's political history. And I want to be able to write that from a woman's standpoint where I can talk to the women who are either active uh, in society. And of course, why not Zahra on this story? In the past. <laughs> um, I feel... I feel there is um, there's a lot of Zahra Nadir in Afghanistan, and uh, I think we need to invest our time in informing them, in educating them, and helping to see their own power of what they can do and how they can change their society. And I think my job, 
hopefully, my dream is to be able to write this woman's political history, to be able at least write stories that can inspire women in Afghanistan, that help them understand their roots, that where they come from, their own struggles, that what we face right now in Afghanistan, that we did not born in 2001, that our women's rights struggle for women's rights in Afghanistan have a long history. Mm. And for us to be able to envision future, we need to learn about our past. And I hope to be able that person who can bring that past to life and help women see their long roots in history of Afghanistan and see their participation, their role as the integral for mm. the future of this country. Because if women do not stand up, you know, you know, mothers love their children and you cannot imagine any other love than the love that mother have for a child. And I feel when the women of Afghanistan are saying that the future, that the lives of their children are at risk, I think they will become very fearless. As we are seeing, they have been in the past two and a half years, mm. but I'm hopeful that they will be the one deciding the future of this country because it's the fate and the future of their children that's at risk. And on those incredibly inspirational hopes and dreams, Zahran Aziz, thank you ever so much for coming on the show. It's been such a privilege talking to you. Thank you for having me. Really, really appreciate this. I'm going to do this.